Sometimes that fear can be so crippling that you never even try. And I struggle with this just the same as anybody else, but I've just been forced to greet fear head on. And as much as I don't like being uncomfortable and as much as I don't like fear, it's been invaluable for me. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your ears today as we chalk up for a chat with Justin Salas. Justin's a ridiculously strong boulderer and comp climber with a seriously impressive resume, including two silver IFSC medals, five national championships, and a world championship to his name. He's a V-double-digit climber who just keeps getting stronger. Oh, and he happens to be blind. But if you think that holds him back, you are wrong. He was the first paraclimber ever to send V11, and he's also pushing into some super hard territory on sport routes. Did I mention he's blind? You guys, I was lucky enough to climb with Justin out in Red Rocks, and he's just one of the kindest, most impressive, and stoked people I have ever had the pleasure of tying in with. And as you'll hear from him in this interview, he is a really informed climber and has a ton of great advice for us. Now, beyond the crag, Justin's doing inspiring work to make climbing more accessible to the visually impaired, and he's also really pushing the sport forward for paraclimbers as a member of the Adaptive Climbing Group. I'm just so psyched to share this conversation with you today. The official climbing nutrition sponsor of the struggle is Fizzy Vantage. Fizzy Vantage is the leader in climbing nutrition with more than 45 professional climbers, including today's guest, Justin Salas, now using their science-backed products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Now, as you hear from Justin, he's a huge fan of their supercharged collagen, and he credits it for cutting his recovery time in half when he used it after a finger injury. He now uses it daily, as do I and thousands of other climbers, to support their connective tissues so that we can stay healthier, train harder, and climb stronger. And who wouldn't want that? Plus, you guys, it just tastes delicious. I like to mix it into my morning tea and then do like a mellow six-minute hangboard routine to send that collagen to where it's needed most. It is easy and it works. Check it out along with their other amazing products that truly stand alone when it comes to climbing nutrition. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off your order at fizzyvantage.com. This episode is also sponsored by Friction Labs Chalk, which is what top athletes like Justin Salas use and trust for dependable, long-lasting grip. Y'all, it just feels better and lasts longer than any chalk I have ever tried, and it really does make a difference on the rock. Friction Labs Chalk is made with the highest quality ingredients. With no crap. I'm talking no fillers, no rosin, no drying agents. And what does that mean? Well, it lasts longer and it keeps your skin healthy. And that's pretty important. Justin's a fan of their Chunky Gorilla Grip as well as their Secret Stuff Liquid Chalk, which I'm becoming a huge fan of myself, especially at the gym because it's hygienic and it just lasts forever. And Friction Labs loves helping climbers to perform at their best. You guys, try it risk-free and just see for yourself. That is how psyched they are to help you level up. Enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. The struggle's carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honnold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. 
Swing on over to HeldonFoundation.org to consider setting up a monthly donation like I did. And while you're there, you can learn about the awesome projects that they're supporting. From remote indigenous communities to girls' schools in Africa to bringing solar to the most polluted regions here in the U.S., they are doing such amazing work. Check it all out, you guys. And lastly, y'all, after my chat with Justin, stick around for a couple minutes and I'll share a bit more about my day out climbing with Justin not too long ago. Hint, he crushed and I flailed. <laughs> and um, also, I'm going to share with you how you can score some swag from the show. All right, get ready to lock off for this awesome chat with Justin Salas. Justin, welcome to The Struggle, man. I'm really stoked that you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm really psyched. Oh, I'm just so happy to have you here, man. You are incredibly inspiring on and off the rock. I am excited to dive in to training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game. But before we do, Justin, I'd just love to hear what struggle means to you through the lens of climbing. Yeah, that's an interesting topic for sure because... I feel like my whole life I've been put through the ringer a little bit. I started off dealing with struggle early on as a kid with being diagnosed with a hip infection with MRSA, having settled into my hip joint and making my body go septic. And I almost died from it. And I think I was, I had my 13th birthday in the hospital then. And a year wow. later, I would lose my sight. And so I was always the kid in my family that was getting the crap kicked out of them. And I always wondered why my siblings got off so easily. And not that I wished any sort of ill will on anybody. It was just like, man, I feel like I'm taking the brunt of it for all of my family. And so struggle has always been ingrained in me. And when I found climbing, it was weird how perfectly everything meshed together. And I just found climbing to be expressive of my my ability to endure and my ability to have a knack for the suffering, as it were. Yeah, let's peel that back just a little bit before we dive into the rest of the format here of the show, because you are a blind climber, and that is really unique, certainly to the guests that I've had on the show, but you're also a crusher of a climber. Gold medals at comps, first blind climber to climb V11, of which you've done multiple, and hell, I don't climb anywhere near V11, and I have sight. So, you know, you're strong, you're a hell of a climber, you've got great technique. I'm excited to dive into all of that, but let's talk about the progression of your loss of sight, right? Because it it happened over some time, I think, when you were, did you say 13? Yeah, it fluctuated. There was a day, in fact, where I was out riding bikes with a friend and we were crossing a main street in Tulsa back in my hometown. And I remember getting to the median in the middle of the highway and it's like all of a sudden my brain realized I couldn't see it and I couldn't tell where the cars were, how far away they were. All I knew is I couldn't see the street well enough to cross it. And I had to call my homie Bo to come help me get across the street. And that was like, I don't know, it was shocking to me because it's like there was something going on in the background, but my brain had a limiter on it or something, and I wasn't able to fully grasp the like full value of what was going on until that moment. And then at that moment, I knew something was wrong, and so we started doing all the doctor's tests and things like that, all the eye doctor tests, and we were able to deduce that it was some sort of optic neuropathy, but we just... It's still actually undiagnosed. It's an optic neuropathy of unknown origin. Wow, man. That is just such 
a crazy thing to, I'm sure, experience and wrap your head around, especially as a teenager, when there's already just so much going on in your life emotionally. How did that affect how you handled struggle and challenge? Yeah. I mean, it came, it probably couldn't have come at a worse time, to be honest. I don't think losing your vision or losing a sense could come in any sort of good time. But in my case, I was uh, just about to turn 15. My parents had just purchased us a car. I was working on my academic background so that I could be a fighter pilot. I grew up next to the airport in Tulsa, and I watched the F-16s take off every single day and was like, that's what I want to do in life. That seems like the coolest thing. And of course, as a young boy, it was a natural urge to want to go fast and do extreme things. And being a fighter pilot seemed like it ticked all those boxes for me. (laughs) When I started losing my vision, it was one of those things where it's like, what next? And so we just started trying to figure out not only what direction I should go, but like how to do school and how to do like normal things. And I went to the school for the blind for about three weeks to a month, I would say, to go through one of their orientation camps and learn how to use accessibility technology. And then I went to a private school for a week. It was This was during the transitional phase of losing my vision, but the teachers at the school didn't believe me that I was losing my vision because <laughs> my vision presents in a really bizarre way because I don't have any central vision looking straight ahead I can't see out of what you would use to focus on something that's all gone but I have peripheral vision so I can navigate myself in space and orientate myself directionally in in those regards but Uh when it comes to actually looking at something there's like pretty much no use I have almost what's known as like a an invisible disability because I can appear as though I don't have any issues but then when it comes down to like even just crossing the street is pretty terrifying and i was taught to do it all at a hearing and stuff and but just to be clear the condition that you have is not correctable correct no glasses or contacts or lasik could fix uh, the eyes so the eyes themselves are healthy but the optic nerve the connection between the brain and the eyes has malfunctioned i think it was an optic neurosis or a swelling of the optic nerve that caused the optic nerve to die there's what they've deduced at least Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Justin. Like for me, for example, I just thought blindness or I assumed blindness was kind of binary, like you're blind or you're not blind, Um, which is, you know, just so dumb. (laughs) To be honest, you know, obviously there are like gradations of it and everybody's experience is different. And so for you to share a little bit of that nuance, I think is important that um, you are legally blind. You cannot see anything that's in front of you, but you do have some minor peripheral vision to help orient yourself and and that you've learned to use in an astounding way as a rock climber. Um, I think that'll inform the rest of this conversation and that's helpful for us to understand. It's very helpful because, I mean, I post on my Instagram or on social media and stuff and I'm using verbiage like blind or visually impaired. And when they watch me climb, it looks so fluid that people often question whether or not I can see or not. And I don't really know how best to, you know, it's like, you're just going to have to take my word for it because everything that I'm doing is off of memory. It's not off of sight. Like sure. I'm orientating my head in a way to see where I am in space off of my peripheral vision. But if I look directly at a grip or a foothold, I can't see it. So, you know, it's, there's a strange story to be told there. (laughs) 
on the one hand, that that kind of like questioning that you might get on Instagram is probably annoying, right? Like, is he really blind? And you're like, yeah, I'm fucking blind. But on the other hand, it's almost like a great compliment because your climbing is so fluid. And that's a testament to the work that you've put in on a route up to that point, right? Yeah, not, it's, it's cool you say that because I've had that in the back of my mind. Well, they haven't seen the past five or six days of effort just to memorize something. And I spend a lot of time flailing, you know, and it's got a strange sort of um, set of uh, social challenges because if you're titled under the name professional climber, people just think and assume that you should come into their gym and crush all their projects and you should be like Herculean figure that can dominate whatever it is that they're climbing on. And when I go to the gym, I, th I feel like people are often surprised at how uh, bad it looks sometimes when I'm trying to do something for the first time and it takes me, I don't know, upwards of 30 tries sometimes, depending on how hard the boulder is or how hard the route is for me to memorize it. And then like the last burn of the day, I might do it because by that point I haven't memorized. Yeah, that kind of struggle there is just something that so many of us just don't even have to think about. Memorizing, fully memorizing every single foot and hand placement while it's sometimes necessary on the highest end climbs. Like when I was talking with Kevin Jorgensen and, you know, he was saying he memorized pretty much every single move on the Dawn Wall. So a couple thousand feet of moves, but obviously he was still using his sight to dead point those moves and land them. So didn't have to memorize them, you know, even to the point that you do. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. And and even we talked about access for a second there, like getting to the crag, right? The approach, walking over these talus fields or or these trails to get to where you want to climb, even that's a huge struggle. Yeah, the approach. If I don't have the approach memorized, I'll get lost. <laughs> well, and I do often still try. I'll have someone drop me off at a crag that I've may have been to one time and I'll uh, say, I'll pick me up at this time. And then I get lost inevitably. And it's not necessarily always like a tragic story of I never got to the climb, but it just takes me longer to find it sometimes. Access is one of the most uh, important and difficult parts of my life as a, as a climber, but moreover as a visually impaired individual. Well, you know, what that tells me though, is that you've got like this internal drive, this psych that is so high because what you have to overcome before even dipping your hands into a chalk bag is bonkers. It's stuff that most of us don't even think about getting to the crag, hiking in, getting set up, checking out the route, maybe watching some stuff on YouTube. Like you have to overcome so much at every step of the way. That psych is high for you to get out there and project like some of these boulders you've done 20 times, 30 times. So I love it, man. I'm, I'm fueling off your psych now. Let's dive in and let's talk about training. Where do you struggle specifically with your training, Justin? Right. So, you know, originally being a boulderer, it was all like strength-based isometrics and a lot of things that would employ maximum strength as fast as possible. So power and strength. But as a root climber, my body type is uh, one of fast twitch. Like in soccer, I was a winger and a forward. In BMX, it's all fast twitch muscles to like yank the bike up off the ground as hard as you can. So I found bouldering to be really easy in that way because it was similar uh, muscle movements. But with root climbing, it's like my complete antithesis style. It's something that is, it doesn't come naturally to me. And so 
um, I struggle with not enjoying doing the things that I'm bad at just like anybody else would. Yeah, just that concept in general about having to spend a ton more time, you know, on route, obviously, when you're climbing on sport, for example, than on bouldering. And for you not necessarily having the option of climbing like Chris Sharma, where you're just dynamically swinging from hold to hold. So, you know, when I watch videos of you, you are just locked off. How do you train that? How do you go from maybe a, a few powerful moves on a boulder to needing to put together 30, 40, 50 moves? So I typically will do 30 to 45 second hangs on a 20 millimeter edge. And if I'm not getting pumped on something like that, or if it's not difficult enough, I typically hang weight off of myself for these, these hangs. And you can do it on whatever edge size you like, but what ends up happening is you're breaking the cross links in your tendons and you're realigning them to be stronger and more rigid. But in the process, you're also adding uh, a gradient to the tendon so that it's both stiff and pliable or plastic. And so the tendon can be healthy and hold a lot more weight for a longer period of time. And a longer duration hang just allows you to, you know, do just that is stay on holds longer. 20 millimeter edge might be big for some athletes, but for a lot of athletes, it's a pretty decently small edge. It's like single pad. So if you're able to do that for 30 to 45 seconds, you're going to, you're not even hardly staying on that, that size of hold on your project half the time when you're actually climbing. Right. And so I do that for the fingers, but I also do the same sort of thing for my arms and I do all sorts of different bent arm angles. So whether it be one arm or two arms, I do 90 uh, degree bent arm hangs for 30 seconds with extra weight. Same thing with uh, 140 degrees, 120 degrees past 90. So the deeper the lock off and then trying to do the same thing as deep of a lock off as I can get. So I do like the maximum peak angles for these uh, long duration hangs or these density hangs. And so, and so that's 30 uh, that, to 45 seconds on those as well. Exactly. Yeah. I got you. And it helps people want to know how to do one arms and things like that. Those are definitely a good way to progress into that because you're just recruiting every single muscle fiber. And when you'll start to shake, you'll notice a shaking sensation in your body. And the more that you hang, the uh, more your body starts exhausting all the stamina in one particular muscle group. And then all the small muscle groups have to activate and turn on. And that shaking process is your body turning on muscles that you might have not been using in the past. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I do a lot of these hangs. I mean, it's ingrained into my cycle and I just do them to feel good. Like at this point, my body likes to be trained in order to continue to feel good. And so I just train like crazy just because it's a meditative process for me anymore. And it's just a good way to stay both uh, it's a good way to stay healthy, both physically and mentally. And other train, other forms of training for me would be like Matt climbing me into a dead end on a route, like purposefully putting me into a bad position beta wise. If you were supposed to do a particular sequence of hand movements and you're supposed to do them very sequentially, instead of doing it the right way, he'll force me to do it backwards. And he won't tell me. And then he'd be like, okay, now you have to down climb because you're stuck. And I'm like, yeah, clearly. And so now I have to down climb and it just forces me to stay on the route longer to then get back on track and fix my problems. Cause I have the, I do that a lot, both in competition and outside. You know, I like um, that as an exercise 
for the rest of us as well. I think that's really interesting. There's a mental component to it, right? I've climbed this sequence wrong. Now I have to fix it. But also, of course, a, a physical component because you're to climb longer, you're having to down climb. There's different body tension that's held when you're trying to down climb, depending on the steepness of the wall. That's a really cool example. I think probably you run into it probably more than a lot of um, climbers that have sight would, but I've certainly hit that when I'm trying an on-site or I'm trying to flash something and I blow a sequence and I'm like, okay, do I just peel and blow the one chance <laughs> I had at the on-site or right. do I try to fix this thing and mentally as well as physically, basically practicing mistakes, practicing dead ends is really interesting. I like that. Yeah. If you could propel the amount of time that you're on the wall, then, you know, you would have more success. All right, Justin, let's talk about nutrition now, my man. Where have you struggled with your nutrition? Oh, yeah. Oh, certainly the struggle for my nutrition has been one of the most problematic areas for me. So when I was younger, I was diagnosed with ADHD early on as a kid. And so I was put on ADHD medic medication, but the medication made me feel terrible. And so after expressing this to my parents, they took me off of it. And my mom had read that caffeine was a good way to kind of uh, combat ADHD and help you stay focused for longer. And it, w it was true, you know, after starting to drink coffee and Mountain Dew and things like that, I could focus on schoolwork longer. But on the flip side, it became its own monster. Uh, I started getting into energy drinks and I started drinking just epic amounts of soda. And for the longest time when I was climbing, it was just like... A Red Bull and M&M's was like all I needed to get me through a setting shift or get me through a, pro a day of projecting or something like that. But um, I didn't really have too much concern as far as like my weight because I was generally pretty fit. Well, yeah, that's an understatement. You are insanely fit. And, you know, as a boulderer, maybe M&M's and Mountain Dew is enough, right? I mean, you're doing six to eight moves. Uh, pretty quickly, I realized that sort of lifestyle and diet isn't sustainable. And I wanted to, as it took me longer, as I pushed into harder grades bouldering, it took me longer to memorize them. And I, if I wanted to be able to do V8 or 9 in a day, then it took three or four hours to be able to do memory work and to memorize the climb and to do each move and then link them up and do the boulder in two halves. And then hopefully by the end of all that, I would have been able to execute it uh, in one session or maybe two sessions. And it... it became apparent that I needed more than just quick amounts of energy to uh, do these sort of things. And so my diet started shifting whenever I realized, well, I can climb way longer and feel way more healthy and recover way, way better if I was eating the right things. And so this was before I started root climbing. And it was a good thing that this this started happening before I started root climb, climbing, because I think if it, it's already challenging enough to push my limits on a rope, if I had this whole nutrition thing going on in the background, I think it'd be even more demonstrative of a task. For sure. Yeah. So what does that look like now when you made that shift? How do you view nutrition now? And maybe you could just talk us through what a typical day or what your um, routine is like. Yeah. So I don't really subscribe to like any sort of like eating philosophies or uh, diets, but I just try and eat a, a balanced diet with lots of grass-fed meats and lots of vegetables and proteins, like high amounts of protein. And because my body type likes to gain muscle quickly and it likes to hold on to water weight really easily, 
I try and stay away from a lot of carbohydrates and I don't drink a lot of alcohol because, you know, it's just dead calories. It doesn't do anything for me. And so I, I just try and eat as clean and healthy as possible. And so typically on a day-to-day -day basis, I'd fast through the morning times and then uh, I break that fast after into the afternoon with a smoothie or sometimes just like like eggs and bacon or like a salad alongside that. And then typically snack throughout the day until the uh, the dinner time, then I'll typically eat the majority of my calories uh, at night. And that's always like extreme amounts of vegetables and lean meats and things like that. Less on the caloric intake and higher on the protein side of things. And uh, that generally keeps me feeling recovered. And I don't focus a ton on weight, but it is true that if you're packing 10 extra pounds that your body is not using, then it's going to be harder to stay on the wall for longer. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. It doesn't look like you're packing any extra pounds, at least um, from the videos I've seen of you. <laughs> you. You look to be a pretty strong, lean climber. And thank you for telling us a bit about your nutritional routine there. I think that's always fascinating. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, and it's cool, too, because Fizzy Vantage came around at kind of a perfect time whenever I was wanting to improve in my nutrition and my diet and the supercharged collagen from Fizzy Vantage. Like, my fingers have never been healthier. And I did end up rupturing a pulley in a April of last year, and my recovery process was probably halved by the amount of time that I would typically see a climber recovering from an in injury. And I think a lot of that has to do with substituting the PhysiVantage collagen into my system because I was taking it twice a day and doing long-duration hangs to make the tendon healthy again, and it helped tremendously. And uh, now post-injury, my fingers are just unbelievably strong and healthy. And it's one of those things where I don't like having to think about pain in my fingers. And nowadays, it's, it's, they're as healthy as my uh, biceps are. All right, Justin, let's talk about tactics now. And of course, we touched on this a little bit back in the training chapter when you were talking about having to lock off so much and the different styles as going from bouldering to sport climbing, but I want to go back to bouldering now and I want to talk about dynamic climbing because obviously that's a struggle with you. And why don't we look at the most dynamic of climbing you could possibly get in bouldering and that is dinos. And there's a video that you have on your Instagram, I think it was this V9, where you did an all points off dino, which is nuts because you are blind. Yeah, I think it's interesting because like I'm a very powerful climber. I'm a powerful guy in general. It was just my background to do these sorts of things. And so those big jumps you see are like that one, for example, it's called Taurine. It's in the Calico Basin in Vegas. It's a really sick climb. But the holds that you start on are pretty terrible. And the hold you're jumping to is actually a sloper. So it was just exciting. It seems preposterous. And when you're standing underneath it, you're like, I'm supposed to go from here to there like what the heck and it's got to be 50 degrees or something like that that you're jumping because you are jumping way backwards right it's like up and out. yeah it's super overhung yeah and the sloper's just in cut enough for you to pull your hips into the wall once you grab it but not more than that and there's no more feet afterwards so it's like a mandatory campus boulder afterwards which is just sick it doesn't get much more pure <laughs> than that we had just sent another a couple other boulders that day and taurine was kind of the last thing on our list and we didn't have a whole lot of time and so we just kept throwing ourselves at it and i had not even gotten close to sticking it and it felt you know like it probably wasn't going to go and i would have had to come back to try and execute it uh, by myself later on 
And instead of having to climb like VA up to a crux and then execute a crux and then climb more VA and having to rely on that muscle memory and that motor function for a long period of time, with one move, you can just try it a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And so I just like really started giving it shotgun rips and all of a sudden it just happened. Like I jumped with everything that I had in me and I grabbed for something like I never saw it. And when I grabbed the hold, it was a shock to me. I like pulled myself into the wall as fast as I could. And I just went completely rigid when I grabbed the hold because I was shocked. Like I didn't think I was going to get close to doing it at all. And here I was holding on to the solution hold. And it's so, like those nature videos you see where the bears are hanging out at the waterfalls and all of a sudden a fish just accidentally jumps in their mouth and they're like, oh shit, I just caught a fish. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. You just like, you just no, caught I, a boulder. Yeah, no, it feels just like that. I like dinos because if I feel the hold with my fingertips and I'm like, oh, that's it. You know, there's always that moment when you're trying a big move and you get your fingers around the lip and you're like, oh. If I can just do that, but better, it'll go. And so that's been my philosophy with dinos is if I can jump to a position and someone's like, if you just go a little bit to the left and then I'll go a little bit to the left and they're like a little more and I'll go too far to the left. And then they're like, okay, bring it back. You need to come back to the right a little bit. And with that process, it's, it's just one move. So it doesn't take as long for me to memorize uh, these big dinos as it does these long, complicated endurance resistance climbs where I'm having to memorize every single foothold and, uh, you know, pause under extreme tension and then search for footholds or something like that. Now, I want to shift here to the mental game for a second. And we have talked a lot about kind of different aspects of the mental side of climbing because your climbing is so cerebral out of necessity, but also you really seem to enjoy that side of, of climbing. Absolutely. But you said something that I wanted, I want to peel back a little bit more here on the mental side. You said that fear is the mind killer. And so <laughs> I'm curious to, to know from your perspective, how fear potentially limits you and what you do to address that. Yeah. I'm sure for the nerds out there that are listening to this, they'll know exactly where that quote came from. But that quote comes from a main character of the series, Dune. So essentially, he's always describing how fear can halt everything. If you're on a mission and you need to accomplish something, but fear is constantly getting in the way and you're like letting fear dictate the decisions that you make in life, then like you're not really going to make it very far. And sometimes that fear can be so crippling that you never even try. And I hear it all the time where people are like, oh, I want to come down. I'm scared or watch me here. I don't know what's going to happen. And I struggle with this just the same as anybody else. But I've just been forced to greet fear head on. And as much as I don't like being uncomfortable and as much as I don't like fear, it's been invaluable for me to grow accustomed to just being scared and not being intimidated by the fact that, oh, if I get up into this crux, I'm going to be scared, but comes with the territory. You know, what we do is inherently risky and makes sense to be scared and to have respect for the things that you're doing because these mountains, these cliffs and boulders, they don't owe us anything. We're just trying to arise to the occasion and uh, overcome something that nature has, you know, laid out for us. It's just such an incredible perspective coming from someone who certainly faces the unknown and, and fear, you know, on a level that the rest of us probably don't have to. You know, if I'm trying at all points off dyno and I miss it, I know exactly where I'm going to land. Um, you know, for you jumping into space like that, 
it's a totally different bag. So you've got some perspective here. You've got a bit of a superpower on this fear. How does fear limit your climbing or just in general, how, how can it limit, you know, the rest of us and what, what do you think we can do about it? You know, if you're letting fear dictate uh, your movement while you're on the wall, you're not going to move very fluidly and you're not going to be able to climb at your limit because you're letting fear dictate, oh, if I fall, it's going to be bad. Or if I do this move and I'm high off the ground on a boulder, are my friends going to spot me well or the pad's in the right position? You know, you kind of just have to put that out of your mind and continue uh, pushing through the process. So then how do you deal with fear and, and how do you just strengthen your mental game in general? I'd say one of the biggest things and the most helpful things that I've done over the past couple of years has been playing a lot of chess. Chess is a very, tac uh, that's a tactician's game, of course. There's a lot of theory involved and a lot of, if they make this move, I'm supposed to do this move. And there's a whole series of events that happens after this. And I remember I, I met Jimmy Webb and Giuliano Cameroni in Vegas and some of the biggest figures ever for me to meet you know it's just a dream to even be in their company and for hear sure. their stories and i remember trying to explain this whole philosophy of chess to giuliano and he, he was just like so interested by what i had to say as far as chess that i was like and i was a new chess player at this moment i was just tapping into what it meant to be a decent chess player and as i was telling him this i had my own little epiphany of there's something more here that even i don't understand and so i started reading chess books and i came across a book called the art of learning that was absolutely instrumental in my pursuit of using chess to improve my climbing and climbing to improve my chess game as well for example there's a word called a word it's a german word it's a zweisenzug it essentially just means intermediate. And it might be a move, if you have a, a strategy and you're trying to set up this attack, you might uh, do the attack too soon and you forgot uh, to employ a defensive measure right before your attacking move. And if you don't employ that defensive measure before you do the attacking move, then you know, you leave your queen side open and then you're going to be able to uh, be vulnerable to attack while you're trying to attack. And so this intermediate move helps you uh, stay focused and stay on track uh, for the greater goal of trying to checkmate your opponent. And so likewise in climbing, Zweisenzug, or the Italian word is intermezzo, you might run into a situation where you're uh, needing to get a high heel hook but in order to do this, you have to first upgrade the left foot from the foothold that you're on and bring it higher so that if you're already in a lockoff trying to get a high right heel hook, you're not going to be able to as easily get that high heel hook without upgrading your left foot first. And if you were to just go for the heel hook immediately, you're going to burn off a lot of energy taking that weight into your arms and trying to set the heel hook without the support of a left foot. And so there's all, all sorts of little tricks that I've learned in the mental game of playing chess, and it has helped me tremendously in climbing. All right, Justin, let's get into the bigger picture here and talk about things that you're passionate about and that bring you purpose beyond rock climbing. And I first want to hear more about the work that you've done with New View Oklahoma in this super cool camp that they have. Yeah, so New View is a company based out of Oklahoma, and they're one of the largest employers of visually impaired people in the state. 
And uh, they're just trying to add value to people that are historically unrepresented. And if I think the statistic has shown that more blind people live in low-income uh, homes in impoverished areas, it I, for whatever reason, I think it's just difficult for people with visual impairments to find work and to find purpose. And I think this is something that a lot of visually impaired people struggle with is finding direction and purpose. And whenever NewView approached me with the opportunity to be a part of their summer owl camp, which is a camp that they do every summer where they take a lot of their campers and go do various activities. And then in, in this instant, they wanted to do climbing. And they reached out to a local gym in Oklahoma and they had me and my site guide come out and we did a little presentation and then we just hung out with the kids and climbed with them and I did a little little public speaking thing there and just told my story and it was so rewarding for me to see I think there was like 75 to 100 blind kids that tried climbing either for their first time or they had been exposed to it previously but they you know were trying it again now. What was that like for for you and Matt, your sight guide, to be there and, and to give these kids that experience and to share that experience with them. Yeah. Like, again, adding value is so much more rewarding to me than just my own pursuits because, you know, as people, we always want to do something that is uh, greater than ourselves, or at least I would like to assume that a lot of people are looking for something that's more fulfilling than just their own vain pursuits. And whenever all these kids were trying climbing and they were expressing, oh my gosh, I can actually do it. That was the same feeling that I had when I first climbed. Because I remember the guy that got me into climbing had been climbing for a couple of years and he was like, you should try climbing. You should try climbing. And I was like, bullshit, I should try climbing. That seems like something you need your vision for. <laughs> and I tried it for the first time and I had that epiphany too, where it was like, whoa, I can do this, you know, and it didn't look the same as everybody else. And it, I needed a lot of guidance from p the people around me to find holds and so on. But with their help, I was able to do it. And likewise with these kids, I don't know if any of them are still climbing. I would hope so. They were all having the same, I could hear throughout the whole gym, everyone being like, whoa, like, I can't believe I made it that far. And I heard people talking about, like, I'm scared, I'm scared. And then the people that were calling for him were, you know, just reassuring him, you're okay, I have you on belay, it's all good, keep keep going. And then they would keep climbing and they just kept going. And that sort of relentless unwillingness to give up and surrender to the fear is the same sort of experience that I had as a kid or as a young 20-something getting into climbing for the first time. Man, that's beautiful. And it was just the most rewarding thing ever to, I got all emotional and was tearing up at certain points because I just, you know, all it's magnified. My, my emotion is now not just something that I was experiencing, but a hundred of these kids are experiencing the same thing simultaneously and just being in the presence of that was wonderful. Yeah, it really is, man. Thank you for doing that, Justin. I just, a lot of the work that I do, like on the volunteer side of things is with kids and I love it, you know, especially when you get to push kids out of their comfort zone and help them to make these breakthroughs. Like, you know, you could actually be changing the trajectory of their life. So that's great. Everybody should check out uh, New View, Oklahoma. It's just doing great work for these kids. And, you know, I want to take another minute here and talk about one other thing that you're involved in, and that's that's the Adaptive Climbing Group. Yeah. So Adaptive Climbing Group, they're also known as ACG. Were, they were my first sponsors in a way. So I was just kind of a rough around the edges boulderer who was bouldering in the backwoods of Arkansas. And I went to a competition with some friends and I ended up meeting a representative of ACG there at this competition at the Sewell Gym. 
and she saw my cane and was like, you should try competing. And I was like, what? how did you get that off of you seeing my cane and realizing I was blind? I was like, I would get crushed in competition. Are you kidding me? And uh, she was like, no, there's competitions called paraclimbing. At, at this time, it was called adaptive climbing events. Now the term is becoming more of a paraclimbing climbing competitions. But she introduced me to the group ACG and told me what they do and that there's these events that I could compete in against other people with disabilities and visual impairments. And I was certainly psyched, got my interest. And just being someone who's competed a lot in their background found the thought, or the thought process pretty exciting. And the first time we went and competed uh, was in Salt Lake City on a bouldering competition. And uh, I took second place behind Ronnie Dixon, one of the most uh, prolific single leg climbers out there. And uh, I was just so psyched. It was so much fun to see. Uh, it felt like being amongst my family. We all had something wrong physically with us, but we were all uh, there together trying to overcome our own personal disabilities. And it didn't really feel like a competition against each other. It felt just like a big unity of overcoming in general. Amazing. And there I met Karima and she was psyched on what I was doing and she offered to pay for my way and Matt's way to the Adaptive National Championships in Boston in 2017. And so she put me on and it's been history ever since then. And she was instrumental in helping me get to my first international event in Scotland. And then I've just been walking with the paraclimbing community ever since. And Crushing it just... too. Like, I mean, you're <laughs> winning these events. Like you just kind of jumped right in at the top of the podium. Yeah, it was, again, I just never thought that I would even be in this opportunity. And I have a tendency to focus a little bit too hard on my own pursuits. And so it's been good to step back from climbing more at my limit and be more focused on those around me. And it's amazing what people like Kareem are doing and giving access to people that typically wouldn't even have had the money to go because I didn't have the money at the time. And so yeah, you guys can donate to them. And if you want to support what ACG is doing, they're always looking for donations. And likewise, New View is always looking for ways for uh, people to volunteer their time and money and resources. Yeah, they're both just doing such incredible work. You can find their information on the Struggle Instagram page. And Justin, thanks for all the work that you're doing to advance those great causes and just to be crushing and, you know, just inspiring so many climbers You've really inspired me in this chat, and I'm so psyched to do it again. Let's keep in touch. Oh, thank you. It's always a treat to talk with someone who's like-minded and someone who's got a good story to tell as well. So I really appreciate your time and having me on here. And that wraps up our chat with the ridiculously strong and talented Justin Salas. What did you all think of it? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Venga Salas, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Yeah, I just got so much out of this conversation, you guys. Justin's ability to rise above the unknown, control his fears, and use his mind as well as his body to execute incredibly difficult climbs, it is inspiring and motivating as hell. Now I know that personally I can easily fall into this trap of just focusing on things like finger strength, but I am going to start thinking like Justin in my training and my climbing, playing chess with my projects and going after them with total commitment like that guy does. You know, I'm also super inspired by Justin's advocacy work with visually impaired climbers and awesome organizations like New View Oklahoma and the ACG. So please check those out and support them if you can. 
shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, as well as Justin Salas. If you guys want to level up your training and performance with incredible products such as their supercharged collagen developed by climbers for climbers, check it out. It is the best. I love this stuff, and I know you will too. You can find it at select gyms or on fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. Also, be sure to check out Friction Labs. It is what top athletes use and trust for dependable, long-lasting grip. Justin's favorite is the Chunky Gorilla Grip, which also happens to be my favorite. I love breaking up those chunky little pieces when I'm resting en route. <laughs> but look, whether you like fine or chunky, they've got a chalk for you. Pop over to FrictionLabs.com and use code STRUGGLE20 for 20% off your first order. All right, that about clips the anchors on this episode. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I had the pleasure of climbing with Justin and some of his wonderful people out at Red Rocks, and it was just a friggin' blast. First of all, the approach was long and challenging with some, like, pretty sketchy moves over exposed terrain, and Justin cruised it. I mean, it was insanely impressive to witness. And then there was the climbing. I mean, Justin put down this 11D with one beta burn and then an easy send, moving through some pretty bad feed and sequency moves far more fluid than I did. It was such a cool day and the first, but hopefully not the last time that I was belayed by a blind guy. Now, before I go, if you'd like to support the show in the climbers who make it, I would just be so, so grateful for it. This show takes a ton of work, and if you're getting a lot out of it and you're in a position to contribute, it would mean a lot. Swing on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and become a patron. Not only will you help us to bring more of these blockbuster names and struggles to the world, you'll also score yourself a super rad aluminum travel mug slash can koozie just like Justin and all of the guests on our show have. Keep your caffeine hot on the way to the crag and your can of suds cold after the send. How cool is that? All right, y'all, let's climb hard and do good things in the world. See you next week.